Hi, listeners. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that this episode is sponsored by The Draw Shop, and we've got something exciting for you. Let me ask you something. Have you ever been asked what you do? We all get asked this, right? Have you then answered and then got the response of totally glazed over eyes or just the look of someone politely smiling but definitely not caring? It sucks. I know. I've totally been there on both sides, actually. That's why my team and I at The Draw Shop now offer a service to help you perfect your elevator pitch so that people immediately understand how you can make their life better and so that you can use this anywhere in your marketing. It's the single statement that compels your prospects to take action right away. Here's what happens. You meet with an expert copywriter on our team to define the problem you solve, how you solve it, and the transformation your customers experience after working with you. From there, we'll turn that into a short and sweet elevator pitch just for you and create a compelling one-page visual story to help the world better understand your business and how you can help them. For a special limited time offer, we are offering you this service for one-third the usual price, valued at $1,500. Yep, 70% off. Again, this will only be available for a limited time, and we've already seen incredible results with our clients changing this one single statement. So to get your word perfect pitch today, head to www.thedrawshop.com forward slash elevator pitch now. That's www.thedrawshop.com forward slash elevator pitch. Okay, let's get into today's episode. About four years ago, he was complaining about meetings and he said, you know what, our meetings suck. I was like, well, tell me about it. He's talking about his meetings. I'm like, yeah, those suck. And I said, you know, of all of your C-level team, of all your VPs, how many of them have ever had at least an hour's training on how to run great meetings? He goes, oh, none of them. And I said, okay, well, how about your employees? How many of them have been trained on how to show up at a meeting, how to attend them, how to participate in them, how to, you know, work on communication styles during meetings? He goes, oh, none of them. I said, well, then meetings don't suck at all. You suck at running meetings. Hello, listeners. Oh, my goodness. I'm so excited today. First of all, welcome to another episode of Backstage Business. I am so freaking stoked to have our guest today. His name is Cameron Harold. You know that I've mentioned him a billion times on this show because our team has implemented so many strategies of, of Cameron's into into our daily operations. And we've done the Vivid Vision. We've read the book, Meeting Suck. We just, we love everything about Cameron because everything that we've learned from him works. So it's awesome. He's got this incredible story and I'm going to let him tell it at the beginning of the interview, but there's so much for you to get from this episode, like seriously, a lot of stuff. So if you've ever had questions on your, your kids being entrepreneurs and how to provide a great environment for them to do so, or if they even have the traits to be one, if it's something that you should foster, if you think it would be something that they would love and have that type of lifestyle, we're talking about that. We're also talking about COOs and as Cameron calls them, the second in command. And it's It's so important to understand the difference between the COO and the CEO. And so we're talking about that, what kind of support your COO can get, where you can go to listen and find out more on other amazing COOs of incredible companies. 
And we're going to talk about why, why we're so different and how the two can work together in the most optimal way. We're also going to talk about vivid vision and meeting suck. And if you maybe are listening to this podcast for the very first time and you don't know me and the billions of times that I've talked about Cameron, I'll just tell you that meeting suck sounds like exactly what it is. It's a book about meetings that suck. You've you've been there before where you're sitting in a meeting and you're just like, okay, that was two hours of my time and absolutely nothing was accomplished. So really it's about how are you running meetings And it's great. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're also going to talk about vivid vision. We're also going to talk about our current climate right now and the feelings that many of you may be having in terms of, I don't, I don't know how to pivot and I'm not sure that I'm going to survive this. Maybe we're going to shift your mindset on that. Really great things. Cameron's got so many incredible stories, TED Talks, way more books than I've mentioned. So all of that, of course, is in the show notes, but just take a listen because this one is too good to miss. Cameron, I am like super geeking out right now that you're on the show. And I think my listeners are, I know my team was so excited that, that you're on here because we're obsessed with your books. We implement Meetings suck, vivid vision. There's just so many things that I am super excited about. So thank you so much, so much for being with me today. Thank you. I, I wish I'd known that as a child, kids would or people would geek out over me as an adult. I, <laughs> I, just, I was just a geek as a kid, but no one was geeking out over me. <laughs> it's happening. It's happening. I remember actually at I think it was the annual Genius Network event. Our art director was there, and he normally doesn't come to events, but he came to that one, and he was like. <gasps> That's Cameron Harold. <laughs> I was like, yeah. <laughs> He's so excited. So it's really cool. God, if my kids, if my kids ever heard that, they would disown me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So there's a lot we're going to talk about today. But mm-hmm. first, can you kind of give, you know, Cameron's version, your 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 story, your background, and how you got to today, 2020? Sure. Yeah, I was groomed as an entrepreneur. I was raised by my father to be entrepreneurial as were my brother and my sister. So the three of us, for the last 15 to 20 years, each of us have owned our own companies. When I was 21 years old, I had my first real business. I had 12 employees when I was 20 years old. In fact, and I even did a a talk that's on the main TED website, on the TED.com site about raising entrepreneurial kids. And I talked about probably 15 different business ventures I had by the time I was 18 years old. So my whole life was being groomed in the entrepreneurial space. And then I started coaching entrepreneurs 30 years ago. So before coaching was even a thing, I had been trained on coaching and situational leadership and a lot of the business principles. And I had started coaching entrepreneurs when I was only 27 or 28 years old. I had 16 entrepreneurs I was coaching. By the time I was 30, I'd coached 120 entrepreneurs with real companies, typically usually about 10 employees though. They weren't that big yet. And then I went on and I I was... Uh, co-founded a, a um, auto body chain. We built that up and took it public. I left as we were taking it public. I was hired as president of a private currency company. We built that up and sold it. And then I joined my best friend who we'd known each other through a mastermind group. We were in an entrepreneur's organization forum together for four years. And he'd seen me growing these companies and saw my business skills. And I saw the business he was trying to get going. And I joined him really to, to coach him for three months And after about a week and a half of coaching him and some of his team, one of his key members of his team said, you know, I can't do anything Cameron's trying to teach us. You should hire Cameron and I should quit. And that's what happened. And 
I joined Brian with 1-800-GOT-JUNK. I came in as the 14th employee and came in as the chief operating officer. And when I left six and a half years later, we had 3,100 employees system-wide. Uh, we had no debt. We'd given up no equity. We were operating in four countries, 330 cities, had gone from 2 million to 106 million in revenue. We ranked as the number two company in Canada to work for. We'd landed 5,200 stories about our company in the press. Really, we built an amazing brand. And I left there 13 years ago next week and started coaching companies again. Typically, 50 to 500 employees was the zone that I was going to start coaching. And now I've worked with entrepreneurs in 28 countries. I've done paid speaking events in 26 countries on six continents. Then I've written five books. And then I recently started the Second in Command podcast, which is the, you know, everyone interviews the entrepreneur. I wanted the rest of the story. So we only interview their COOs. And then I also have an organization called the COO Alliance. So that's kind of my, I guess, quick bio. Yeah, just, a, just slightly impressive. <laughs> so, okay, speaking of COO Alliance and the podcast, which is awesome, I've totally been guilty of sending my COO and other team members to entrepreneurial events mm. at Cause like years ago I thought, oh, they're going to get so much out of it. Like me, like if they could just be in the room, like I am, they're going to come back with some really great ideas and how to execute and all of that. And it totally was not that because <laughs> yeah. it's not, it's not where they were at. You know, we're so we're just as, as a CEO or, you know, founder, like you're just the, you have different stresses and roller coasters and you're thinking about different things. And I know for one, I don't want to be doing the things that my COO is is doing. But I thought, oh my gosh, I want our listeners to hear, you know, what that difference is, why it doesn't work out when you send them to these to these events and yeah. what COO Alliance is. It's funny, I told I told a friend of mine recently who was trying to understand the difference, and I said, it's almost like sending a guy to a baby shower. <laughs> it's like, what totally. are we? doing there like what are we doing like yeah we're dads and yeah we're going to be engaged in our kids lives but it's like dude go do something with the boys and like let the, the, the women do their thing like we just don't belong second in commands so they could be president coo vp operations we're kind of title agnostic but whoever is second in command to the ceo is really concerned about operations execution culture systems meeting rhythms strategy, planning, you know, metrics and dashboards, they're all concerned with how to get stuff done with the plans and the how to get it done. The entrepreneur, their role is to think strategically, to be idea generating, to listen to the customer and see the market and to kind of drive energy and drive culture and drive vision and then get out of the way while people figure out how to make it happen. Right. You know, it's, it's almost like the homeowner who wants to build a house their job is to visualize what's going to get built. The contractor's job is to figure out the plans. And then the employees follow the plans to make the dream come true. And the homeowner doesn't talk to the employees because they screw it all up. Yes. So, so the reason I started the COO Alliance was it was almost like we had all these homeowners going to events where the contractors were. They didn't fit in. It was a different discussion. It was a different energy level. It was different personality profiles. You know, most entrepreneurs are very high D or high I's in DISC, and most COOs are very high S's and high C's. If, if we look at a Colby profile, most entrepreneurs have a high third number, which is their high quick start, mm -hmm. and most COOs 
have the high first T numbers, which are fact finders and follow throughs, meaning they ask a lot of questions and they put systems in place. And those behavioral traits are different. So that, that's really the purpose for starting it. And then it's also how do we build a high functioning team? How do we build the the real yin and yang partnership between the CEO and COO. So they really have each other's backs and they operate like a, you know, a two paired Navy SEAL team that they're really watching each other's back and they have each other's best interests, but they both have different roles. And it's so important once you have that figured out and it, like, how often would you say that you're seeing that that's not happening, that there isn't that like union and that people aren't really understanding what their role is? Well, it, it changes as the organization changes. So I've, I've always talked about the ones and the threes that as a company goes from one employee to three to 10 to 30 to 100 to 300, the organization shifts. Or as it goes from 100,000 in revenue to 300,000 to a million to 3 million to 10 to 30 to 100 million, it shifts. So if we're thinking about the smaller entrepreneurial company where maybe you've got 10 to 30 employees, most CEOs hurt themselves by hiring a second in command too early. What they should be doing is hiring an executive assistant. You know, I've always said, if you don't have an executive assistant, you are one. So you hire an executive assistant first, that usually buys you some time. And then what you want to do is hire a real good second in command and pick the title after you think about all the stuff they're doing. The title that you give them should match their roles and responsibilities the behavioral traits they're coming in with and the kind of the measurable outcomes that they have to get done in that year. And then also what you're paying them, their title should match that. But I think we often give a big titles to people that, that don't really need them. You know, a second in command could be a director of operations or a general manager or a VP of operations or a president or a COO. You know, it's like a controller should be a, a head of finance, a controller, a director of finance, a VP of finance or a CFO. We often give out titles that are too big. It's so, so true. It, And then the next part is really working on that relationship. And it's like date night in a marriage that you need to be constantly working on that relationship, working on the communication, having fun together, learning how to read each other, learning how to recognize each other's strengths and buffer each other's weaknesses and, you know, how to be each other's spotlights. There's a lot that I think we can learn from high functioning marriages or high functioning teams to build the CEO, CEO relationship. And then lastly, I think it's the core trust relationship where the COO has to be the one who can say kind of the, the the bearer of bad news and confront the brutal facts and tell the CEO where they're screwing up, but they have the art of doing it privately, not in front of others so that the CEO doesn't get their back up against the wall, but they know they're hearing the truth because often, yes. often people won't tell them the truth. And what's interesting is how, what I find is it's, it's like, it doesn't, it's like, doesn't bother them at all. It doesn't really make them. And if it does, <laughs> it doesn't seem to make them uncomfortable to have those conversations. Whereas only when the only time it makes them uncomfortable is if you do it in front of their board, yeah, in front of the leadership team, or you do it in front of their subordinates, then they get their back up against the wall and they can come out fighting. But when you do it in a good way, then it really doesn't get their back up at all because you know they're not as concerned because they know that you're doing it in a safe space for them. Right. Yeah. So I want to kind of, I want to kind of shift here because I want to get everything in. I'm going to go back to your book, Meetings Suck. When was that written, by the way? Meetings Suck was written, geez, probably four years ago now. Yeah. It was, it was written from, because one of my, one of my coaching clients, a CEO that I've coached for six years, coached him from about 
40 employees up to 700, which is crazy. About four years ago, he was complaining about meetings. And he said, you know what? Our meetings suck. I was like, well, tell me about it. He's talking about his meetings. I'm like, yeah, those suck. And I said, you know, of all of your C-level team, of all your VPs, how many of them have ever had at least an hour's training on how to run great meetings? He goes, oh, none of them. And I said, okay, well, how about your employees? How many of them have been trained on how to show up at a meeting, how to attend them, how to participate in them, how to, you know, work on communication styles during, he goes, oh, none of them. I said, well, then meetings don't suck at all. You suck at running meetings. <laughs> and he yep. started laughing. He's like, holy shit, you're right. And that's when I decided to really codify all of the best practices that I'd been using for years inside of growing these high growth companies. In fact, even when Elon Musk came out about 10 months ago and said, you know, if you're in a shitty meeting, stand up and leave the meeting. I sent him a text message afterwards and I said, no, fix the root cause, like fix the meeting and your people won't have to leave shitty meetings because they won't be in shitty meetings. Yeah, exactly. You don't leave a shitty meeting, you fix the root problem. Well, people, when you, when you make this shift, like when we did that for our business, it makes people actually excited because they know there's an outcome to it. There's a reason to go and that something is going to come out of it. It's so funny, like literally just, I think it was two days ago, I was talking to a friend of mine and she's got her husband working home all day right now, of course. Mm-hmm. And she's like, it's so interesting because it seems like most of his day is on these phone meetings and they're talking about the work and they keep talking about the work. And I keep wondering each day, there's so much talk about the work. When do you actually do the work? <laughs> right. Yeah. When are you doing the work? You know, it's, it's, it's in, what's interesting about it is that the work is often done in the discussion. So it's like, I always talk about plan, brief, execute, debrief. And, and often the work of discussing and talking about what we're doing and what the plan is and who's doing what by when, that often is the work so that you spend less time and you waste less time later on having to cycle back and, and discuss things. So what, what can often sound like a bunch of people talking, yeah, but if it's, done, if it's done not done properly, then yeah, it's a complete waste of time. Yeah, exactly. It's been such an amazing tool for us, which made us, we do, so we do a, a book club with our team. And since mm-hmm. we're all kind of, a lot of the team is in Salt Lake and then some of us are, are virtual. So that's how we get together. And it's just been so awesome. And everybody pitched after we did Meeting Suck, well, we have to do Vivid Vision. Uh, <laughs> and that was like the most amazing experience because now, first of all, it was, it was mostly me doing it, right? But it was so cool how like once I did it and I sent the draft to the team, how it brought all of us so much closer together, just reading the book and then going through the exercise and then people doing it for themselves personally. And now we'll do it. You know, we'll help other people that have done a vivid vision and then come to us and they're like, Oh, Hey, now we want to put that, you know, in, in video form. And it's, it's just amazing. And I feel like now, like right now is such an important time to really do it if you've never done it, but if you have done it, to like really make sure you're visiting that each day. But I wanted to ask you, mm-hmm. there are people right now, you know, if they've gone through that exercise or they've done something where they're, they're looking, you know, well, by the, you know, two years from now, I'm supposed to be in this position, but sure. now this whole COVID has happened. Now I'm destroyed. Now it's not going to happen. My goals aren't going to get met. And I was like, oh my gosh, Cameron's going to be such a great person to speak to about this and those people that are struggling with that. It's almost like yeah, they just so, want to give up. So the only way that the goals aren't going to happen is if their industry has completely been obliterated. Because the reality is we are going to get back. It's just going to delay things by four to six months for some people. 
it may hurt cash flow, but it's not going to destroy, you know, an entire business or an industry. I can't even think of one. Like my sister's company has been really, really hurt. She's gone from a million dollars a month in revenue to zero, but she she can't pivot. She runs co-ed intramural sports leagues for a hundred thousand people, but she can't say, okay, play beach volleyball out of your living room. So, but they'll be back like at some point, you know, probably in June or July, they'll be able to start back in their leagues and they'll have to lick their wounds and they'll grow again, but there's no real industry that's been obliterated. Right. So what is happening though, is I think everyone was aligned with that vivid vision, hopefully. Now it's time to revisit, especially now. I think now is time to revisit the vivid vision, share it with all your employees again, talk about the fact that some of these things aren't going to happen until two years out. Some might happen 12 months out. Some can happen in fourth quarter. Some can happen third quarter. Some we can make happen now. And then start to get people excited about making one sentence at a time come true. Now, there's, an old, there's an old saying, you know, how do you eat an elephant? And it's one bite at a time that's kind of like making the vivid vision happen is how do you make it happen? Well, you make it happen one sentence at a time and, and like building a home, you put in the foundational parts first. Well, there's a lot of foundational things that people can work on right now. You can work on getting rid of your grumpy negative employees. You can work on, work on interviewing and recruiting really happy, you know, aligned employees. You can work on training and putting skill developments in place for your current employees. You can start working on your brand and on your office space and refreshing things up. You can work on, you know, organizing files, organizing SOPs, a lot of the stuff we didn't have time for, those are foundational blocks of building a company. But you have to get the mindset of the leadership and the employees to move away from, oh my God, things are horrible. And remember that misery loves company. The more that you surround yourself with people that are grumpy and negative and worried, you're going to find it. It's that confirmation bias. But the more you surround yourself with people that are abundance mindset going forward, rose-colored glasses, you'll start seeing the opportunities that are in front of us as well. Absolutely. I love that. It's such a great message. How did you like first come up with the vivid vision? Like when, when, were, when did you start practicing that and then actually present that to the world? Like here's, yeah. here's what you can do for your business. So back in 1998, there was an entrepreneurs organization event here in Vancouver and they invited 120 entrepreneurs to go to the lunch. About 16 of us went uh, it was down at, at BCIT, and the 16 of us that sat in on the luncheon, there was Brian from 1-800-GOT-JUNK, myself, and Dan Leonello, who was another friend of ours who owned a company called PadTech here in Vancouver, and then 13 other entrepreneurs. And we were all introduced to this concept of visioning from an Olympic coach, a high-performance sports psychologist. And the three of us decided to work on our, what we called then painted pictures or vivid visions of our companies three years in the future. And we met at my office. I was running a, a private currency company. The three of us met at our office and we started working on our visions for our company. So Dan worked on his for his manufacturing business. I worked on my vision for um, the private currency business. And Brian worked on his for what was called the Rubbish Boys at the time prior to 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And that's kind of where it started from. Mine became a, a mind map of post-it notes that became projects that all the team got bought into. Brian's became a two-page document that he wrote out of his parents' doc, and you know Dan did a similar concept. So that was where we started with it. And then as we started growing 1-800-GOT-JUNK, I started talking about this concept and how we were using it internally and started teaching entrepreneurs, and it just started moving forward from there. And then I covered it in my first book, Double Double, and then from there I expanded it, talked about it in the Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs, and then I actually wrote a book called Vivid Vision as well. 
It's so good. It's all the all the books are just so so good. I have to. I will have links to all of them for Thank sure. You. And you also you did a you did a TED talk, didn't you, on Vivid Vision? Yeah. yeah. No. Well, yeah, yes, actually, I did a TEDx talk on Vivid Vision about two years ago, and then I also did a talk that's on the main TED website about raising entrepreneurial kids, and I did that ten years ago. But I've actually attended the main five day TED conference for the last nine years. Okay, let's talk about that when as we're talking about entrepreneurial kids. So we've got we've got four teenagers. Yeah. <laughs> we're a blended family. So it's we each had two and that's that's our that's our clan. <laughs> There's a lot of teens happening in this joint. There's so many different personalities. Can you talk about like can you talk about you have a yeah. I've met your is it is it two boys or one boy? I know I, I met, met two boys, yeah. I've right. got Connor, who is almost 17, he'll be 17 this summer. You probably met him at one of the juniors. I did. That's who I met. Yeah. Uh, and then I've got another son who is 19, who's in first year university. So the talk that I did 10 years ago was about raising entrepreneurial kids. And it was really about how I was raised as an entrepreneurial child. So I talked about how my father groomed my brother and my sister and myself to all be entrepreneurs. We've all owned our own companies for the last 15 or 20 years. I talked about how I probably had something like 15 or 16 different businesses by the time I was 18 years old. And I talked about almost all of them in that TED Talk, talked about the different business lessons that I learned from each little entrepreneurial venture. One of the big mistakes I think parents make is they get way too involved in their kids' businesses. And I'll give you an example. The thing that drives me crazy, like I can't stand it, is when I drive down the street and I see some mom or some dad standing beside their kid's lemonade stand and the parents are standing behind the kids and the parents are like trying to flag cars over. And I, I feel like saying, go inside, start your own fucking business and let your kid learn. Yes. They don't, and, and then have your kid come inside after 15 minutes and go, I can't get any cars. And then coach them and make them go back out and try again. And then have, so the, with kid, you. have the kid set up their own table and make their own sign. But some of these lemonade stands look like mom spent two weeks on it. Mom needs a hobby or dad needs a hobby. And the kid didn't learn anything. Yep. So what I, what I want is kids to actually go out and start it and handwrite their own shitty little flyer and then learn what a better flyer looks like and get them to go online and look at like, and get, not worry about turning this thing into like some big corporate, whatever, just go do something. And if it, if it works for a day, do it for a second day. If it works for a week, do it for two weeks. And after three weeks, if you're bored of it, cool, do a different business venture. But right. that's where I really learned a lot about entrepreneurship was doing all of these little, and I could, again, I could walk you through 15 that I had by the time I was 18 years old and defined business lessons I learned from each of them that still hold today. What was the first one again? I think you might've mentioned it earlier. The first one that I ever did was I was, I went door to door in my neighborhood in Winnipeg, Canada and collected coat hangers. Um, <laughs> so what, what happened was we were at a dry cleaner and I noticed that my mom brought a bunch of coat hangers in with her. And the dry cleaner paid her two cents per coat hanger. So that was in the days when you could recycle coat hangers for two cents per coat hanger. And, and so whenever you did, now we just throw them out, which is so stupid when you think about it. So I started with the Yellow Pages phoning the different dry cleaners in Winnipeg. And I asked them how much they would pay me for coat hangers. And I had someone who was willing to pay me three cents. And I was just this hustling little seven-year-old. I said, no, I want eight or four cents. And the guy said, I can't give you four cents. I'll give you three. And I said, how about three and a half? And the guy said, he started laughing. He goes, how old are you? And I said, I'm seven. And he goes, well, what made you think three and a half cents? I said, well, if I give you two coat hangers, you'll give me seven cents. And he goes, fine. I'll give you three and a half cents a coat hanger. 
And my mom was standing there and she looked at me and she said, but where are you going to get the coat hangers? And I kind of got a little bit nervous, but I opened up my closet and there was about a hundred coat hangers in my closet. I had been going door to door in the neighborhood, collecting coat hangers from the neighbors, preparing to sell them. So I knew I'd have a deal. So I think I did it twice. And, but that was a seven-year-old who learned about negotiating, learned about splitting the difference, learned about spotting an opportunity, learned about cold calling, learned how to handle rejection. I was seven, man. And I learned all those lessons. That's so great. Now, when you say... But, but, but again, if my mom sat there and did it for me, what would I have learned? Oh, exactly. So were these things that you... like? Okay, here's my question. When you say that your dad, you know, fostered this environment for you guys to be entrepreneurs, like did you have these ideas and then he he supported that or is he it He supported it and he told us having a job was a terrible idea. He told us that having a 9 to 5 job would destroy us, that we would never have free time. I remember him taking me to a golf course one day at 12 o'clock and he showed me all the people walking onto the golf club Wednesday at 12 o'clock. And he's like, that guy owns a car dealership. That woman owns a clothing store. That guy owns an accounting firm. That woman owns whatever. And then we played golf. And after 18 holes, it was like 4.30. We're sitting on the balcony and I'm eating my fries and gravy and drinking my cherry Coke. And my dad's pointing to all the people walking into the golf course. And he goes, that guy works at the mine. That guy works at the car dealership. That woman works at the clothing store. He said, do you see the difference between people playing golf at 12 o'clock and people playing golf at four o'clock? And I said, yeah, people that play golf at 12 o'clock own their own business my dad said, you know what that means? And I said, well, they get to play more golf. And my dad said that anyone who owns their own business controls their time and they have a lot more free time than the people who are stuck working nine to five. Yeah. And I was, I was 15 years old and that lesson burned in my brain that I did never want to have to work nine to five because I wanted to play a lot of golf. Yep. And it, I wasn't, had to- it wasn't, and this was back in the day when being an entrepreneur was not cool. We were vilified you know, entrepreneurship being cool only started in 1997, 98, the first rise of the dot-com era. Yeah. Prior to, prior to 97, you were greedy, you were capitalist, you were, you were profit-centric. We were shut down in schools. There was nothing cool about being an entrepreneur back then. It's so true. And then all of a sudden, everybody started calling themselves an entrepreneur when some maybe weren't exactly entrepreneurs too. Yeah, there's <laughs> a lot of people calling themselves entrepreneurs now that are entrepreneurial and I love them and they're great. And they're but an entrepreneur is someone who has lots of other people fulfilling what the customers need so that it spins off time and money for the entrepreneur. A freelancer does all the actual work. Right. So there's a different, and I love somebody who's a freelancer because they don't have one job doing the one thing for one company. They take the stuff they're really good at and they love doing and they do it for lots of companies. That's a freelancer, but someone who then turns it into a business with lots of people around them, that's the entrepreneur. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. So what about, you know, growing up in this environment what were some of the things you learned in terms of this kind of really sucks sometimes, you know, it's like really awesome, but it can also really suck. You, oh, just well, kind sure. of- like, you know, when I was 20 years old and I was in second year university and um, five of my really close friends moved to the city that I was living in to work for me for the summer. And in the first couple of days that I was there starting my business, they wanted to play basketball in my yard all the time, or they wanted to go to the pub for beer, or they wanted to go down to my dock for a swim. And I had to work because I had a business to run and I was scrambling and I was scared I was going to go bankrupt for the first two months. I had nine employees and I was 20 years old and I was frustrated that my friends were having fun and I was working like crazy and I realized this was hard. And then I got really frustrated with them because after two months, 
they were all pissed off that they were only going to earn $4,000 that summer painting houses, which was a lot of money back in 1986. But they were mad at me because I was probably going to make closer to 15,000. And I'm like, I'm working way more. I've got more risk. I put up money. Like I really understood the dynamic, the, the, the struggle and the power dynamic between the employee and the employer. What are, what's some advice that you could give outside of don't run their lemonade stand for those that are really trying to encourage that with, with their own kids. And maybe they're not even thinking about it just yet. You know, maybe their kids are like way older or younger, but what's some advice you have? Well, there's two things. The first is it's kind of like thing one and thing two, to be a successful entrepreneur, you have to have two things. The first one is you have to have the entrepreneurial DNA. You have to be hardwired as an entrepreneur. Most entrepreneurs are ADD. So I have 17 of the 18 signs of attention deficit disorder. That's not a disorder. It allows me to see everything. I see what's happening with my customers, suppliers, the market, the economy, time, my branding. And I notice all the little details. They drive me crazy, but I can't focus enough to worry about them. So I delegate them to somebody else to fix it for me. But the school system, you know, doctors and and teachers and engineers think it's a disease. Mm -hmm. So most entrepreneurs have the disease of attention deficit disorder, or they really have attention disbursement that gets a strength. The second trait of most entrepreneurs is most of us are bipolar. There's only 3% of the population is bipolar. There's only 3% of the population are entrepreneurs. There's actually the the medical community has nicknamed bipolar disorder as the CEO disease. So there's a correlation between, and mania is why people follow us. You know, the, the, the hypomanic or manic edge that an entrepreneur has is why someone will quit their job to come and work for you or why they'll invest in this new startup or why they'll, you know, join you for a job or why they'll, they'll buy from you when you don't even have the product produced. That's the manic energy that they're following. And you don't find a lot of manic teachers and engineers and lawyers and accountants. They're kind of flat and boring. So if your kid has the bipolar and ADD, don't medicate them, but realize they might be an entrepreneur who just needs the skills. So type the, the second thing they need is the entrepreneurial skills. And those are things like leadership, sales, problem solving, you know, basic understanding of accounting, how to, how to negotiate, how, to, how to, um, to, to find people to do the work or outsource. It's, it's all of this, the kind of soft skills of leadership and entrepreneurship that they need. So you can train your kids to be entrepreneurial, but I would only push or encourage the ones who have the entrepreneurial DNA traits to actually do it. And then the reality is the world needs lots of great employees. Encourage your kids to be entrepreneurial, but the ones who don't necessarily have the entrepreneurial DNA, encourage them to be employees for great entrepreneurial companies. I love that so much. Yeah, that's such a great point because I think there, like you said, there are some people that they don't, they don't want that responsibility. But I've noticed, you know, even on our own team, what I love about a handful of our employees is that they're very entrepreneurial. They're not entrepreneurs, but they're in their own division of the company. It's like they they have those those skills, but not to the point where they're they're ready to, you know, experience all that mania. <laughs> exactly. Because the mania goes, you know, pretty low too. You had this great talk at Genius Network, where you were talking about the mania and you were talking about this, you know, being bipolar and the ups and downs. And then you ended it with such really powerful advice. And I'd love to, I'd love to close with that because so many of our sure. listeners are in that position. Sure. What do you want me to end with though? The power, you know, what do you do? Like, how do you, how do you find support? What do you, what do you do when you are that 
entrepreneur that's, you know, you're having, an, you, oh, you right. had like the, the optimism. Yeah. Or, so, so when you hit the stage of the real crisis of meaning or the real burnout or the real stress or the real angst, and, and especially like right now, we're in a really tough time for a lot of people. It's magnified stress. You know, often entrepreneurs go through the up and down roller coaster, but it can be very magnified right now if your business is shut or, you know, I was talking to someone the other day that he's like, great, I've got the payroll protection money, but I'm still not even allowed to open my doors. Like I got to spend it in eight weeks. I don't even have eight weeks to operate. So it can be very, very stressful. You want to surround yourself with positive people. Misery loves company. You've got to get away from the miserable, negative, grumpy people. Surround yourself with people that are filled with abundance and, and positive thinking. You want to surround yourself with, with people who can coach you based on experience, not the Socratic method. The right now, the world is littered with coaches who have never done anything other than they've learned how to coach, but they, they can be very dangerous moving people in a direction when they've never actually run a business in the first place. So get advice from people that have been there before you. You know, as an example, this is the fourth economic downturn that we're getting ready to go into, but it's the fourth one that I'll have navigated companies through. I ran a company in the 87 downturn. I was building 1-800-GOT-JUNK in the 2001 depression or recession. And then I was coaching 16 CEOs in the 2008 um, economic crisis. So you want to get coaching and advice and mentoring from people that have been there before you. I also really think it's powerful to invest in masterminds and communities where you surround yourself with like-minded people who you can you know, get help from. Really take care of yourself. So meditation, therapeutic or transformative breath work, yoga, going for walks, getting outside every day, really, really connecting yourself with nature and yourself and breath and, and physical exercise so that you're taking care of yourself, eating well, you know, not over drinking, just really, really taking care of the resource that you are. So those are all probably pretty good strengths to think about. Absolutely. Especially, especially always, but especially now. Oh my gosh, there's so many good things here. We covered a lot of really important topics. We'll have links to everything. Is there anywhere, what's, what's the best place to, to send people to find more information about you and COO Alliance? Yeah. So two places they should go or three. One is they should also all check out the second in command podcast because we have some really, really great interviews there where I think we've done about a hundred and 20 interviews with seconds in command everyone and, and you'll know the companies you'll know their entrepreneur like we interviewed the second in command for shopify but no one ever talks to the coo so that would be one to check out the second one is the coo alliance website is the coo alliance.com and then all all five of my books are available on amazon audible and itunes and then also the cameron herald website there's some great resources there as well cameronherald.com perfect we'll have links to all of that in the show notes Cameron, it was so great getting to to talk to you. I'm so I'm so grateful for you. And thank you. thank you so much for everything that you that you shared with us today. You're welcome, Summer. Thanks very much. Have fun with your kids at this time. This is a gift that we're actually getting as well, right? Oh, absolutely. Before time with them. So totally is. <laughs> as much as I want to kill them at times. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thanks so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey guys, I just want to say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already done so, would you do me a favor and go subscribe and review this podcast? My goal is to continue to deliver you content that will really move the revenue needle in your business and give you up-to-date content on anything else that can dramatically help your business. You can also find us at thedrawshop.com slash podcasts where you can comment on the podcast or contact us directly with any issues you'd like me to address. Thanks again. I really, really appreciate you listening and I'll see you next time.